The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. You are now about to take a journey with professional advisors Ken Smith and Ethan Broga on Empirical Investing Radio. To connect with Empirical Investing Radio, please call 1-866-472-5790. Fasten your seatbelts. You're going to need them. Just because the hosts have a sense of humor does not mean their advice won't change your life. Good afternoon and welcome to Empirical Investing Radio. I'm Ken Smith, Certified Financial Planner, sitting next to Certified Financial Planner Ethan Broga. That's two for the price of one. Ethan, good afternoon. That's a good deal. Hey, Ken. You can't beat those prices. (laughs) Yeah, this show is entirely free and uh, it is designed to share with you prudent investing and financial planning ideas, hopefully helping you make a lifetime of smarter financial decisions. Ethan, do you want to give out our contact information? Okay, I think I will. Let's do it. Uh, we can be reached via email at contact at empiradio.com or via phone at 866-472-5790. If you'd like to get a hold of us uh, and join the show, that'd be great. We have, we have a caller now, is that right? Callers are flooding in. Callers are flooding in. We're not ready yet, Simon, so put them on hold momentarily. <laughs> okay, anything else, Ethan? Uh, you know, as always, uh, Ken, if uh, you know you're an individual investor out there, and you'd like to uh, perhaps get a second opinion in your portfolio, or perhaps you're going out for retirement and would like some guidance as to how to to best put that together for you, feel free to give us a call off the air at uh, 206-923-3474 and ask for Ken or Ethan, and we'd be happy to discuss your situation with you. And coming soon, I'd like to do more questions on the program and. Um Situations, things that were helping people, investors, and and people planning for their financial future. I want to go through more illustrations of that on the program. So we'll put that on our agenda going forward. Sounds good. How we're working through tax decisions, things like Roth, conversions, um, asset placement, where to put the investments right in the right type of account, um, where to save, where to direct those funds, how to withdraw, um, what types of insurance, all those kinds of things. I really, I mean, I think we're very well qualified to assist people through those decisions. Um, and they're all very critical and important decisions. Yeah, you mean them really get down to some of the nitty gritty, as it were? Yes, as it were. All right, sounds good. Well, Ethan, we didn't get a chance last week to go through the numbers from 2012. So I thought we would start the program today with a little review and explanation of the varying asset classes that we track. Mm-hmm. It's an annual. It's an annual thing we should do. I think so. Why are we tracking these investment asset classes? But let's start with how things did okay. for 2012, and then we can roll through a couple of articles. Uh, there's a, a great one about um, how, how how a lot of of the professionals have got it wrong last year, and I'd like to talk a little bit about it. I did get a client question uh, today, or a 
listener question, I guess. Um, and we could talk about it, integrate that into our discussion, which was just about looking at how you think about individual stocks. Um, you know, how should you approach the decision to own one stock versus another or sidestep that, that process entirely? Mm-hmm. You know, that, that activity. Right. Let's start with the review though of 2012. And I have in front of us a quarterly update that we do. Um, where we track varying indices that we believe are relevant segments of the stock market from around the world. Mm-hmm. So it's not comprehensive in every particular index that's out there. That would literally be thousands of data points if we tried to track every possible category. Right. But these are the categories that we think most investors should be investing in. So if you have a 401k, as you're listening to me go through some of these, if you have a 401k or you have an investment account just at a brokerage company, or any investment in publicly traded securities, if you don't here have some of the asset classes that Ethan and I are going to talk about, it should prompt you to take the time to review your investment strategy. If you've hired an investment manager or financial planner or advisor, whatever they're calling themselves, broker, and they aren't incorporating some of these investments into your portfolio, you should probably take a look at what's going on and again, I know we would be happy to take a look at your statement, and we're happy to give you the empirical evidence and the data behind why we believe that these investments should be included in any stock portfolio. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. So first off, let's start with the United States and uh, look at 2012 here, Ethan. We had the S&P 500 index, which is a good measure of uh, U.S. large company stocks. Right. Did around 16% for the year, according to the data that was provided to me. Yep. Uh, we have U.S. large growth stocks doing 15.26 last year. Mm-hmm. And U.S. large value stocks turned in a return of 17.51%. Mm-hmm. So last year, value in the large U.S. category, value beat growth. We know that doesn't happen every single year. In fact, if you look at the last three years uh, and even the last five years, growth stocks have beat value stocks, Ethan. Right. Uh, it's only when we get out over longer periods of time, and it's also important that you are using a benchmark that really does properly extract or focus on value companies in the market. So we talk about large uh, blend, you know, which is the S&P, and then looking at growth and value. Well, what's the relevance of that? Well, what we tend to do is focus on a blended approach to capturing all large company stocks. Mm-hmm. So it may not just be the S&P. It might be something like the MSCI 750 index or some other large cap index or the Wilshire 5000 even is right. for all intents and purposes a U.S. large cap index even though it has some small in it. Mm-hmm. That would give you a good exposure to large company stocks. And we tend to avoid allocating towards growth stocks as an asset class that you would own separately because those growth stocks are inside of the blended index, Ethan. Right. So what we will do, however, is put a weighting towards large value stocks. So let's assume for a moment we were, and I'm just going to give you generic numbers, but let's just assume we had an, the equity portion of our portfolio and we got to, um, 
we were going to put, say, 40% into the United States component of the market. And of that 40%, we wanted to hold something like 20%, as an example, into U.S. large company stocks. One approach might be to say, well, we'll put 10% into the blend, the, the general large cap index, and another 10 into the value index. And ultimately, that blend would give me a weighting towards value stocks. Mm-hmm. And why would I want to do that? Well, I think part of that has to do with the fact that you, or the idea that you'd expect better returns, right? That would make sense. Yeah. I mean, what, what else? What other motivation would you have? That would be one other, or you're lowering risk in some kind of way. Okay. If you could maintain about the same risk factor but increase your returns, that would be what we would call a strategy that was more an evidence-based approach. Um, in the context, I'm sorry, of an evidence-based approach, it would be a strategy we would want to engage in. Sure. So simply pursuing return and throwing caution to the wind with regard to risk is not always the best idea. You want to know yeah, what it that. does to the risk. Right. And how do we do that? Well, what we do is we look at the research. We look at the empirical research that's been done as far back as we can get. And very commonly, it's 1926, 27, right? We can get some data on U.S. stocks going back even to the 1800s. But for all intents and purposes, we you, you can get pretty clear data on large and value stocks going back that far. And what you find is that there has been a historical premium for owning value stocks or what you like to... The verbiage you like to use, Ethan, is low price stocks. Yeah, I think it's more, it's easier to digest what that is exactly relative to just the term value. But yes, that's right? exactly right. So these low price stocks tend to have, trade at either a higher dividend yield or a, a lower price to earnings multiple, or you can use cash flow, uh, a price to cash flow, or any valuation metric that gives you a good idea what you're paying for the stock relative to other stocks. Right. And get an idea, are they are they low-priced, are they average-priced relative to the market, or are they high-priced? High-priced stocks tend to be what we classify as growth stocks. Exactly. And for a lot of different reasons, and some debatable reasons, that the history has shown us that low-priced stocks tend to turn in a longer or a higher return over the long run. It doesn't happen every single year. Like we said, this year it worked in the large-cap category. 17.5 for the Russell 1000 value index. Mm-hmm. And we could debate a little bit about, was well, that really the best measure of large value? Is, is Russell the best? Um, right. Probably not, but it is a simple measure. for. Yeah. I mean, for it's, a, it's a reasonable place to start. Yeah. I mean, it isn't the, in our world, isn't the definitive, you know, description of what large value is or large growth or whatever. But yes, it is reasonable to start with for sure. Okay. So, I bring that up, and I'm spending a little time here. It'll go quicker as we go through the rest, but I think the groundwork we're laying here will will help understand what we're doing. So we'll take a large index, and then we'll put some weighting around a value or into a a value-type investment, as an example. Um, The combination then would increase my return over holding, for example, a growth index. My expected return holding a large-cap growth index should be lower than holding a blend, and should be lower than holding just a value, a large value. So I want to be clear. Large growth is the lower of the three in terms of expected return. Right. Therefore, we would wait away from that. Unless you're engaging in some sort of an opportunistic or tactical management approach where you're saying, hey, I think growth stocks have 
have have had uh, a hard time and there's some reason why I think they're we tend to not do that and we'll get to why not when we get through some of the next article yeah you know can I think maybe for further clarification for our, our listeners um, this this approach you're describing right now is vastly different than than I would say the vast majority of approaches that either people or uh, individuals or even in some institutions take in how they pick you know what to own in, in a portfolio and we're talking just right now about large cap, U.S. large cap space, but most a lot of people would take the approach not what we're doing here, but more of hey, well, what has this fund manager done before? Right. Go through a process of well, gee, last year this fund manager did this. It's got you know four star rating by Morningstar or whatever, and come up with a, a reason to allocate funds that way. Right. That is not what we're doing here at all. No. It's that's completely different than that. We're looking at the longer term data as to well, hey, what asset classes make sense to include based on the long-term expectations of, of uh, their performance relative to each other, and then making winning decisions based on that. Not so much, not at all, in fact, based on the last year's performance, based on a fund manager in particular. Or even the asset class itself. Right. So if it wasn't the manager doing really well and then us saying, well, maybe we should look at putting money with him right. or her, mm-hmm. it might be, well, last year value stocks did better, so I'll put money there. Well, we're putting money there, but not because they did better last year. Right. Does that make sense? So there's another fundamental reason we would do it, and we would do it in spite of it doing better last year. And again, I was saying, if you look at these simple gro- Russell growth or value indexes, you'd see that growth has done quite a bit better over the last five and even ten years, according to this. Now, if you have a different value index and a different growth, then you get a little bit different numbers. But yeah. As you go out further in time, what you will see is that those large value stocks will tend to beat the growth stocks. Mm-hmm. And that the the propensity to do that really emerges with greater strength as that time duration increases. So what I mean by that is in any one year, it might be something like 60% of the time value is beating growth in the large cap section, right? And I might be off. I'm doing this all by memory here, Ethan. Mm-hmm. It, it, but when we get out, say, to 20-year increments, it, uh, we slice the market up into 20-year time periods. What you find is it's much greater than being close to 50 or 60 percent. It might be 80 to 90 percent of the 20-year periods value has beaten growth, uh, particularly in the. For, we're talking about the large cap segment. So it's very important that you understand why you are building the portfolio in the way that you do. And you're not doing it for all the wrong reasons. And those wrong reasons that you just alluded to are, one, because it did great last year, the manager did good last year, or two, the asset class as a category did better last year. Those are the absolute wrong reasons to be doing any of this. Yes. Simon, where are we at in time? 30 seconds, sir? Real quick on that, I think if you're doing it with that approach, if you're picking mutual funds or selecting things based on that approach, uh, you're really... You're, you're not following the evidence out there, right? That's correct. We're running out of time here, but that is not the best way to pick things because last year's last year's losers tend to become tomorrow's winners and vice versa. That's correct. So, well, let's take the break. When we come back, we'll go through the rest of the asset classes. There's only about 15 or so, so yeah. it'll be pretty quick. Empirical Investing Radio. We'll be right back. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network 
Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor? Or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at empiricalfs.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. Where do you stand with your money? Let me put this question a different way. Where do you think you stand with your money? Managing money effectively can mean wealth, success, and contentment. Not managing the right way can lead to stress, anxiety, and even health problems. To reach your financial goals, tune in to Money, Jobs, Health, and Other Things of Life with host Gordon Bennett. Every day we are faced with choices, and the wrong ones can be hard to correct. Don't make a bad financial choice. Listen every Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Business. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. Okay, we're back, Empirical Investing Radio. Your co-host... Thank you very much. Uh, Ethan Broga uh, here with Ken Smith. And if you'd like to join the show, as the, the announcer just said, uh, you can reach us at 866-472-5790. And uh, we were just getting into a discussion about the year-end asset class returns, and we're having a discussion right now about sort of the, the large cap space, large cap growth versus value and blend, and, and how we, in our firm anyway, elect to allocate funds to those different asset classes. I'm trying to illuminate our process in terms of why are we reviewing periodically on the show, why are we reviewing these investment asset classes the way we do, and share with you some insight as to how we approach building our portfolios, Mm -hmm. which have done very, very well over the decade plus that we've been doing this through very, very difficult times. And I think the principles underlying the the way we're diversifying would would be very valuable to someone that's missing some of this. And so we were laying the groundwork in large U.S. companies as a foundation. And I used, as the illustration, Ethan, I used, say, something like 40% United States stocks. And I'm using that because that's about, give or plus or minus 5% each way, that's about what we make up of the world trade, the tradable world market currently. Mm-hmm. So it's not a bad way to start you know, if you're building a, an allocation. And then you're saying, well, how much of the of the stocks in the United States, how do those look, right? Mm-hmm. Well, they large stocks make up about 80%. If we took the S&P 500, it's 80% of the capitalization or the size of the market, right? Right. We tend to not diversify or weight that way 
But I'll explain that as we go down the list a little further. But what we are talking about is the difference between large blend, includes growth and value, or those low-price stocks, uh, and a growth index and a value index, and how we would approach that weighting decision. And I think you looked up during the break, I was saying that the longer the time period, the greater the propensity for value to outperform growth. That's exactly right. Yeah, and you, you were very close, actually. You said by memory you were saying 60% of the time. And actually, in any one rolling year, you would expect uh, it occurs actually 58% of the time. Wow, it was 2% off. Pretty close. Mm-hmm. And then actually for a three-year rolling periods, this is from 1926 through December 2011, so a very long period of time. Um, any three-year rolling period, uh, it, it value does beat growth 60% of the time. And then five years is 62% of the time. And then beyond that, you start to get very, very high numbers. Do you have it up to 20 years and beyond? I do. In 20-year rolling periods, 77% of the time, so over okay. three-quarters of the time, value beats growth over that, that segment. And uh, at 40 years, it's 98%. <laughs> 98%. So the key with this is the, the, the degree in which you want to engage in this strategy as a return-enhancing approach, mm-hmm. rather than just owning the, the entire market in a kind of a balanced or neutral position, right? Which, by the way, it does very well relative to more traditional stock picking approaches, right? right? Just right. owning everything and really then focusing on how much of everything in the stock market do I want to own relative to the way I build my bonds. Yep. The weighting I want to have between. That's, that's a, you're already going to be ahead of 70 plus percent of the investors out there. Agreed. Um, but, if you take it a step further, right, you, you really need to understand that, hey, if I'm investing this way, it's not a, a failure if, as we see in the data here, that the last 10 years, large growth has, has beat uh, the value index by from 7.52 versus 7.38. So a marginal difference. Well, that goes against your 10-year odds, right? Yeah. But that happens. Yeah. You would expect it to because it's not a 100%. 100%. Yeah. So it's not, you don't say, well, that doesn't work. You knew that going into it. I will take a 70% probability of success in a strategy any day, any day of the week. That is still, for me, a worthwhile venture. Yeah, and if you're not, let's say you're talking about the 70, the 20 year numbers again, you're not, you're not betting on this side of the equation. You're betting on the other side. Mm-hmm. So only a quarter of the time would growth outperform value. And you're betting on growth? You have very low odds of success, right? You're you're swimming up some very strong current. <laughs> exactly. Your stream. Your expected return is not not as high for that reason. So one of the tools that we use when we're making these decisions then is to look at the relationship between all of the different asset classes that we're going to go through, and look at the return difference. We said, hey, there was a premium. Does it have the premium over that period of time? Uh, my chart does not have the okay. premium over that period of time. That's okay. Um, but if there was a premium, and say it was uh, in large company versus large value, say it was a 1% a year, um, now over a 20 to 40 year period, that compounding can make a pretty big difference. But the, go ahead. I do have the, we can maybe on the next category when you talk about small cap stocks. You have the they're, differences. They have there. the very long, okay. long term data. And I know those are pretty stark differences. Yes. Well, let's move along out of the out of the large. So we're okay. talking about the large category. U.S. small company stocks. So last year, U.S. Small did, as measured by the Russell 2000 Index, did 16.35. So remember, large did 16. So slight outperformance, small over large for the the last year. Right. Small value stocks did 18.05%. 
So a little over 2% better than just large blend stocks and better than small blend. U.S. microcap, which are the teeniest, tiniest little companies in the in the publicly traded market, uh, 19.75%. So quite a bit better than large. Right. Now, here again, you have a situation where you're saying, okay, you just introduced three more U.S. stock categories. And why do we do that? Well, we already talked about the difference with the value. Mm-hmm. Um, that relationship is, applies in smaller size companies that smaller value have outperformed small growth companies. So there again, if we're building using the building blocks or the empirical building blocks of our portfolio, and we're in the United States category, mm-hmm. we want to have some large companies. We certainly talked that we want to have an emphasis on large value companies. Right. We also want to have some small companies. And why do we want to have small companies as a group in general? Why not just own large and large value? Yeah, well, the same reason you'd introduce value relative to, to, to large, or large growth is there's a, in terms of a diversified portfolio, a, a higher return expectation. So it would be the same thing by adding small company stocks. So similar to the relationship with these low-priced versus high-priced, low-priced have a higher expected return. Right. Smaller companies have had a higher expected and generated a larger return. I think you have the numbers. I do. I have it right here uh, in terms of the, the – I have two things. The frequency, which maybe we'll talk about first. So how often do small companies beat large companies? Mm-hmm. Uh, in any one year, it's 54% of the time. In, in any five-year rolling period since 1926 through 2011, it was 57% of the time. In 20-year periods, 81% of the time. Okay. So obviously, longer term you have, the, the more uh, frequent that occurrence is. Do you have the 40-year numbers? I do. I have that. It's 100% of the time, I believe. Bingo. You nailed it. 100% of the time in, in rolling 40-year period since 1926, small beats so that's large. So that's a pretty strong relationship there. Exactly. Now, again, being very clear, do you have the difference in return? Did you say you have, have that between that. large and small? I do. I have that okay. right here. So looking at the same metrics there, um, small companies versus large, basically saying the S&P versus the Russell, in effect. From 1927 through the end of 2011, the U.S. large company index has returned 9.75% per year, which is not bad. Not too shabby. But small companies, for the same period, have returned 11.46%. That's a pretty nice premium for a longer period of time. Some additional return, right. And I believe that small premium is is a little more than the large value premium over large companies. That's exactly right. So that's why you'd say, well, how much would I allocate to large? Have that number, right? Then divide that number across the blend and the large value companies. Mm-hmm. And the reason you wouldn't just buy large value is because there might be some diversification benefit there. But the fact that value does perform differently in different times, like we just saw was, this year it was only uh, 1.5% difference between large value and just the large. But there are times where that, disti- that, that difference is quite dramatic. Right. Um, so... One of the reasons is, geez, if I if I do need to pull my money out of the portfolio early, I don't want to be in a situation where I got caught because I I wound up not being able to stay for twenty or thirty years into this, right? Uh, or I just won't have the patience to see it pan out. But I also may be able to reduce some volatility by owning large and large value th- that way. Yeah, I, in my my view simply is that if you, if 
if there's diversification benefits, it's probably a reasonable thing to do. And if you only have large value, and that's the only asset class you own, you, you, you have failed the first fundamental rule of investing, which is be diversified. While you may have a diverse portfolio among your large value stocks, you don't have numerous asset classes that protect you when large value isn't doing well. That's right. So now if you're going to allocate to small, you would, you would do the same thing. Now we have the ability to divide small into one more category, which is microcap. And research has just shown that there is a difference um, in the returns of those two. So microcaps have even a higher expected return because they're smaller and even riskier. Right. Everything in between, though, and this is a question I've gotten, mm-hmm. what about mid-caps or mid-sized stocks? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, really what happens is you have a, if you took the market and dissected it up into 10 different groups or deciles, whatever you want to call them, and you say, well, decile one is the smallest 10% of companies. Decile two is the next 10% all the way up, right? Mm-hmm. What you kind of see is that it's, it's the lowest return is on the very largest. The greatest return is on the very smallest. And it's a gradual increase kind of in between. Right. So in effect, you can, Achieve some of this diversification without out benefits of owning small and large without necessarily owning the mid cap. You know, it's not bad to have them in the portfolio. No, it's just we don't track them separately because it's just it, there. There really is no distinction there. It's you know, you'd be tracking ten different categories in my example, right? Yeah, and really all you're doing is saying, hey, I can take my highest returning small and my lowest large, right? And I can get a sense of what mids are going to always fall somewhere in between, basically, yes, over exactly. the long run, right? Mm-hmm. So that's why we do it this way. So your small company stocks, um, you know, Ethan, here again we see in the last decade, ending in December, using these generic Russell-type indexes, you actually have a small value underperforming for the last 10 years, 9.5 versus their their Russell 2000 at 9.7, and microcap only t- did 8.42. Yep. So the fact last year that the, the small value or, or the microcap did better, um, maybe it's just rebounding. It's just one of those years. It's been for the last that 10-year period. Um, they haven't done as well. So it doesn't discourage us at all from waiting towards the small and then within small having some microcap and a little bit of small value. Right. And the difference is pretty stark in terms of small value versus small growth. I think it's somewhere between 14-some percent and 9%. Yeah, that's an enormous difference. If you sliced up, again, the Russell 2000 as an example into its sort of growth and value parts, um, you'd have the U.S. growth category from 1927 to 2001 returning 8.68% per year versus the small value, 14.71. So that's an enormous difference. Yeah. Well, I think we have to take another break real quick. When okay. we come back, let's get through the, we'll, start, we'll go through the emerging and international markets. All right. We'll be right back on Empirical Investing Radio. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor? Or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at empiricalfs.com. 
That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S dot com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. We spend 70% of our week in the office. What is the difference between enjoying your job and enduring it? The number one motivator is a positive work environment. And that's where Real Recognition Radio comes in. Join your hosts, Roy Saunderson and S. Max Brown, as they take a look at the positive factors of the workplace, such as employee rewards, recognition, incentives, and much more. Tune in to Real Recognition Radio, Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. We are back, uh, Empirical Investing Radio. Your host, Ethan Broda, alongside Ken Smith here, just talking about the uh, year-end returns for the different asset classes that we tend to include in our portfolios. And we're just wrapping up a discussion on sort of the small cap, uh, small companies over the last year, and uh, drawing the distinctions between sort of small cap, small cap value, and even micro cap stocks uh, as they compare to other asset classes. That is correct, Ethan. That is correct. And so... I was paying attention. We now have a pretty good year in the U.S. market as we've gone through the major asset classes. Right. Um, the range here between 16% U.S. large blend companies, S&P 500, up to the, the top performer here being microcap, those tiny U.S. stocks at 19.75. Mm-hmm. So anyone who had a portfolio that consisted of either a blend of those, <laughs> all those investment asset classes that we've just talked about in the United States, did phenomenally well and much better than most professionals thought we were going to experience at the beginning of 2012. You know, we were reading articles early in the year where people, guys, um, were saying, get Smart Money magazine, get rid of your advisor, you can't afford it because you're going to get a 6% to 8% return a year. Right? Well, according to his, you just got three years worth of return. So don't fire your manager just yet. Or, or, um, or if you did follow their advice, maybe you did only get 8%. Yeah, because he was saying, get, you know, get out of stocks too. That was his other exactly. advice. So, stop following that stuff, okay? Yeah. And um, so now you've got the U.S. basket, and maybe that makes up forty percent of your equity, mar- your portfolio, Ethan. If you're saying, hey, I'm going to wait on a world basis, as I had mentioned, and now I'm going to have these six different or five different asset classes that we've described, and I'm going to weight them. And we don't have time in this discussion to explain how we come to those weights, but we would be happy to talk to you offline. So just give us a call or shoot us an email or maybe in a, you know, we can even, if your people are interested, we'll talk about it more in future shows here. Mm-hmm. 
But I also want to bounce down in the U.S. market to the real estate category. Uh, REITs or real estate securities are a different asset class that we think is a viable investment asset class that you should include. It has good diversification qualities, and it has had great long-term return opportunity. And if we look at last year in the U.S. real estate market, it did 19.22%. Not bad, not too shabby. Over the last 10 years, the MSCI U.S. REIT index has done 11.66%. It's not bad. Wow. has a reasonable yield. Uh, traditionally, the REITs have a little bit higher yield than the general stock market does. And they are, again, have, they do have a, their own unique characteristics that make them good diversifiers away from the general stock market. Not in every single year. Right. But, again, over one to three-year periods, three out of five times, they'll be good in diversification value. Looking at the sheet here, Ken, one thing that really is eye-popping here. It's an eye-popper. Uh, for the five-year returns, idea. which mm-hmm. obviously the five years include 2008, 2009, which was obviously pretty rough for all, all, obviously all equity asset classes. The five-year number is 5.98% per year <clears throat> for five years on that domestic real estate index. That is literally, among on the sheet, the highest performing asset class on, in the five years. For the five, five and years. And certainly five years ago, Ethan, people weren't exactly excited about REITs. We all, I remember the headlines. I remember people asking why in, in the, in the earth that we have real estate. Doesn't make any sense. You were answering those questions to investors in which we were managing their, right. their portfolio. And it's turned out to be the best performing. It was, it was one of the, the people were most uh, afraid of that particular asset class in a lot of cases. And it wound up being the highest paying asset class. It is quite literally almost <clears throat> double the second, second place finisher. It's another confirmation that our instinctual gut feelings about investments tend to be wrong more often than not. And when they are, they can be dramatic. Yes. And so, I, as we get into international, I have another example of that uh, for us in the next, as we roll on. Great. And so part of the way we allocate in the U.S. market is we'll have a 0 to 10% weighting in REITs. And it all depends. We've got different equity model portfolios depending on risk characteristics and what we're trying to do. So typically, it's a good diversifier, particularly at a 0 to 10% allocation to it. Uh, and that has worked out quite well, actually, um, not just in the last 12 years or so that we've been doing this uh, as empir- you know, with our empirical model portfolios, but beyond that, if you go back and look at the data. So now you, you've got 40% of your equity portfolio, you've got these components. And as I said, if you don't own these components – or for some reason you're focused entirely on large growth as an example or small growth or or any of the other nonsensicals, I like to call them ways of dividing up the U.S. stock market, mm-hmm. you need to stop and you need to review if you're concerned about maximizing your return and managing your risk. If you're not, like I said, if you don't mind putting your money into a, going to the casino and putting it down on the roulette table, then you don't need to talk to us about this or listen to any of this kind of stuff. But if you're serious about investing in the most prudent way, it's worth stopping and looking to see. And the simple thing to do is just go, do I own that? Do I own U.S. large blend? Do I own U.S. large value, small micro cap, small value? Do I own REITs? Um, do I have a reasonable way of diversifying across these? How am I weighting these? If, if it's an investment, if it's, well, how are they doing it? What logic are they using? We would be happy to help you review that process. But we take the other 60% in equity, right, or um, 
50% if we did 40 into the stocks and 10 into REITs as an example. Okay. And we're looking in other areas of the stock and, and uh, market like developed international. So these would be countries that are developed countries, the UK, for example, countries like Germany and right. some of the major uh, European um uh, and other developed countries. I don't have the list here of the ones that were. But you look at the IFA index, European Far East index, and uh, last year it did 17.32%, so slightly better than U.S. large companies did. Uh, and growth, you do the same thing we just talked about. I have to repeat it now. Now you know how we're dividing up the U.S. market. You do the same in the developed world as well, and the studies have shown this has worked quite well. Mm-hmm. It's not just a U.S. phenomenon. It's it's worldwide. So you would do the same exercise, and growth stocks did 16.8, a little bit less than the blend. Value stocks did 17.69, and international developed small, con- small stocks did 20%, looking at the MSCI EFA small cap index. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was a good idea to diversify across those asset classes. And I would say, I mean, at the end of 2011 going into 2012, what were most people thinking about? And what was in the media at that time? Uh, and what were investors supposed to be doing at that time? Well, you might recall. I do recall. What was that? Well, we had a major European debt crisis going on. Exactly That right. everybody was, was frenzied about. And that was all, all over the headlines, and hey, the euro's going to go away, and Greece is exiting the euro, and who knows what's going to happen to the euro, and the euro this, and the euro that. But the bottom line is, for the year, every asset class here, the ones we just mentioned, large, large international uh, blend, growth, value, and small cap beat the S&P 500 for the, for yep. the calendar year. And we wouldn't, put, we wouldn't wait towards the growth, so the ones that we would wait toward did the 17.3, 17.7, and, and 20%. Right. All three beating the U.S. Uh, large and U.S. large value, yep, um, and even the small company blend right. stocks. And here's where it really really gets amazing. If you just if you're if you're able to dissect, sort of use an X-ray machine and dissect these numbers, looking at the U.S. large company like the S&P versus these other international asset classes, and look at the returns since July uh-huh. to, to the end of the year, you would find that the Dow Jones or the S&P S&P did seven percent. For that six-month period of time between uh, the end of July and the end of this year, 2000, last year, 2012, but international stocks were actually up 18% for that period of time. Yeah. So for the last six months of the year, you had a, a situation where large company international stocks beat by 100% <laughs> the S&P 500. Wow. And then the Dow Jones was only did only 4.33% from July, end of July to the end of the year, uh, which is four times as great. Wow. So there's an enormous shift there in terms of returns over those asset classes in that period of time. That and is enormous. Surprise to everybody, right? Right. No one thought that that would happen, or especially at the time, because the year was going right through the middle of the recession, which they're still in, I believe. But yet the returns have been phenomenally good relative to the Dow and the S&P. Now you take that and you say, well, I would like to own some of the merging economies. So I've got my developed, I've got my developed U.S., large, small value microcap. I've got my developed, international, large, small value. Now I want to go to those less developed countries because just like stocks, right? You have large, more more developed stocks and smaller, less developed or emerging stocks kind of. You have the same thing when it comes on a country level. 
you have a developed country, and then you have your kind of small cap countries, which are called emerging markets. Right. And where possible, it would have paid you uh, quite handsomely to diversify into those emerging markets. Now, they're riskier. They're more volatile. Because of that risk, they offer a premium just like smaller companies do, as I said, relative to larger companies. Last year, that premium worked out. It's not a single, every single year kind of a thing, though. Again, it's you'll have years where emerging markets do horrible. And I think back into the 90s when nothing could stop U.S. growth companies. Right. I mean, an investor, most investors' portfolio were very U.S. weighted, very large weighted, and very growth weighted. Yep. And for a short period of time, growth in that period did phenomenally well until it collapsed. Right. Uh, but few investors at that time were, were really waiting towards emerging markets. And then the last 10 years, I've heard a lot about it. You know, the investment industry at large is, has put out there that, hey, emerging markets is where the growth is going to be, particularly when they're down on the U.S. Uh, but the truth of it is, is you could have been investing in emerging markets and, and passively managed index funds since 1998, I believe. 88 was, the, um, you know, maybe even a little bit earlier, mm-hmm. but we have the data back that far. And since that time, they've done double digits, you know, returns for, for the entire period. So last year, emerging markets, uh, the MSCI Emerging Markets Index was up 18.22%. Not too bad. Yeah. Because again, uh, Greece and some of those the countries that were struggling, I mean, that that was what was going on. That story behind the scenes. Yet emerging market value stocks last year, um, measured by again the MSCI measurement, yeah, almost 16 percent, so a little bit less than the general emerging market index. And again, that's okay. That's going to happen in any particular year. We don't have small. There are emerging markets small now. I don't have it on the sheet, but. Um, we would tend to look for those as yeah, well. we have if, in our portfolio. So yeah. not, there's so not if you, we want merging large, we want emerging small, we want some value in the emerging market, just like we did in the U.S. and just like we did in the foreign developed. Right. Now you've got a pretty diverse, you're getting a very diversified portfolio, and you're building it in a way where you're really trying to extract the highest amount of return that the market offers. And before we went into the break, Ethan, I wanted to mention that um, – you know, we don't look at all the, I was going to say, nonsensical ways, you know, categorizing into things like biotech or information or health. We don't divide into those kinds of categories. You notice yeah. we're not talking about sure. those types of segments or consumer staples and all that. We're not doing that. And the reason we don't do that is because, again, the empirical data and the research has been quite overwhelming that those are very hard uh Ways of of predicting or or building a portfolio. There's nothing to say that one specific industry subsector will continue to do better, and within that group, there can be large, small value and growth stocks. So just classifying them by those groups doesn't do a lot for you. There's really no control. There's no way of of understanding how it's going to add to the diversification or the return enhancement. Right. You're better off using these broad categories. I think we have to take another break, Ethan, and then we'll come back from our last segment and wrap up our uh, investment overview for 2012. Empirical Investing Radio. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. 
Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor? Or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at empiricalfs.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. All right, we're back, Empirical Investment Radio, uh, our last segment of the day. Uh, Ethan Broga here alongside Ken Smith just talking about the 2012 stock market returns for the various aspects of the world stock market. And we just covered lastly, I think it was just emerging markets. Anything, any finishing thoughts on that part, Ken? No, other than it's, um, you know, it's a, it's a component that we would uh, allocate again. In our portfolios, if you look at how the what what percentages emerging market make up of the world, and it's fluctuated somewhere between ten and sixteen percent, I think, over the last few years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so the way you would look at allocating that in into a portfolio, you know, if you're if you wanted to be very very aggressive, you know, maybe up to twenty twenty five percent even, but that's again being very very aggressive. Mm-hmm. Um, typically, somewhere between that zero and fifteen sixteen percent would be a way to think that through. So if you don't have emerging markets in your portfolio, here again, take a look, see what you've got, um, and ask yourself, well, why don't I? Yeah, you know, when I, 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 I view clients, or not clients, but people who are thinking about working with us, and I analyze their portfolios, give them feedback as to what I think of their current allocation. I often find that it's missing altogether. More often than not, it's not there. Emerging markets simply is not part of the portfolio. Uh, or if I do find it, it's extremely small. Like you may have a million-dollar portfolio, you may have only fifteen thousand dollars or ten thousand dollars allocated to emerging markets. And you know, over the last ten years, looking at those returns, just the emerging market index itself. Uh, I know you have the data there, so I won't ask you to guess, but it's returned sixteen percent per year on average for the last ten years. It's among the best. It is the, the best performing asset class over the last decade. Um, so for folks who don't have that, you're missing out on on that type of return uh, possibility. I agree. I agree. So, Ethan, let, we'll quickly go through some of the bond categories. And if you look at last year, short-term uh, U.S. Treasuries, uh, less than half a percent for the year, the one- to three-year Treasury Index. Uh, intermediate, the three- to seven Treasury Index, 
Your short-term corporate bonds, the Barclays 1 to 3 U.S. credit index, turned in 3.69% for the year. Mm -hmm. U.S. inflation-protected securities, the TIPS, almost 7%, 6.98%, which was the best-performing bond asset cluster of the, of the, the few we have listed here. Granted, we're focusing on investment grade and treasuries of short term, of a short term nature. I don't have the, uh, I don't know if I have the return on the, on the high yield last year. It's not on this sheet. If you see it while I'm reading through this on this, let me know. But, uh, short term municipal bonds, three year muni index, 1.86%. Intermediate term, uh, the Barclays seven year muni, 4.2%. So if you had a portfolio, Ethan, of reasonably conservative, High-grade treasuries or corporates of very short-term nature, you know, you, you, your return's going to fall somewhere between that seven and uh, half a percent, right? It wasn't a phenomenal year for bonds across the board, mm-hmm. but uh, um, I do have the price here for uh, there's a junk bond index by iShares that uh, returned uh, just about eight and a half percent. I'm guessing by the chart okay. here. So if you had higher yield, a high yield index, eight and a half percent. Yep. It, it, it would be difficult to say that you you didn't get rewarded with an equity premium owning some equities or stocks in your portfolio over a bond portfolio. No doubt. Unless you took extreme risk. If you were buying Greece uh, bonds issued by uh, Greece, mm-hmm. <laughs> last year we were saying that it, you had some phenomenal return for taking that risk, but that's pretty speculative. Yeah, sure. Um, they were giving, I think, uh, you could buy Greece bonds at $0.10 cents on the dollar basically at that point. So if you were willing to buy some bonds... Then you, you obviously did because they didn't go. <laughs> they, they paid the debt. <laughs> they didn't go. Didn't go under. Yeah. Um, so they, the returns are very high. Obviously, then. So summarizing here, Ethan, what am I saying? We went over the year's returns and the major asset classes, and the takeaway here are: these are the investment asset classes that you should own. Particularly, we focused on the stock portion. You should own these components. These are basic building blocks, just like a car should have a, a strong frame, should have wheels, should have some basic things. Right. And then there's other nice things like what kind of stereo, GPS, the premium leather interior that you like. Right. All that other kind of stuff are options, right? Mm-hmm. Well, most people start when they're getting investing with all those options. And, and the options would be like, well, should I, you know, own this high flying stock? Should I buy Facebook when it came out last year, right? We right. were talking all about that. Mm-hmm. Um, which stock? And they spent all their time analyzing the market trend and the news that's coming in, right? Meanwhile, they're, they're in a car that has no frame, right? Um, they're picking out features for a car that doesn't have an engine in it. Uh, and, and that's really not the way to go about it. What we think you should do is, is not just us, but the evidence is, again, is overwhelming that a better approach of doing that is to make sure you have the right building blocks. Then look at how much do I, uh, do I want to tilt into the, or how much do I want to weight across these building blocks? And that's where it gets a little complicated. So my advice to you, as we've, we've come out of 2012, we're now into 2013, is take a few minutes, listen to what we just said, and look into your, your portfolio statements. I know it's not always fun. Uh, don't just assume because the market's doing okay, you know, the last month or so or last year, that you can still forget about it. Take a look and see that you have these building blocks. If you don't, pause and figure out why you don't and call us or listen more to the show to figure this out. And I would say this, I would add to that, Ken, if, if you actually do go look and, and try to Thank figure you. this out. Thank you, Sam. And if it isn't easy to figure out, 
then you know you have a problem. Right. If this type of stuff is not at your fingertips, like you can get a hold of it in less than a minute or two by looking at your statement, there's big problems. That exactly. is that, that is in itself a exactly. sign you need some help. And I've been very frustrated, to be honest, with you, Ethan, about the way that the 401k providers have offered, historically speaking, especially in the past, I've been upset about this. They don't even offer a lot of these asset classes. You know, they'll, they'll offer things or categorize things and, um, meaningless categories almost, you know, aggressive growth versus conservative growth. Growth and value. Growth and income. Right. Whatever it is, and, and when you get into the foreign market part of it, they have a, a lackluster at best selection. So you, you don't have a lot of these. But they may be in there. Sometimes you just have to f- take the time to figure out what each of the funds are doing. Right. Um, it's usually easier to identify the index funds because they tend to have the name, you know, U.S. large cap index, right? Or emerging right. markets right. index, emerging. And I've been pleasantly surprised in the last year as I've been reviewing 401k options for people at the addition of some of these building blocks that weren't there five, ten years ago. You'd never see them. Right. So, at least the industry is waking up a little bit, and part of it is because I think investors are becoming more educated, and they're demanding it. They're demanding better investment choices. Mm-hmm. That being said, Ethan, I don't think we have time to get through the, this entire article, but what I was going to relate to this review and the way we're building these portfolios mm-hmm. uh, was just the, 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 the headline or the article out of Market Watch, Wall Street Journal. The problem with award-winning funds... Uh, was one of them, and the other one was almost all of Wall Street. This is right out of Bloomberg. Got 2012 market calls wrong, right? And basically, Morgan Stanley they uh, warned that stocks would decline for the year, and uh, you had um, you had uh, uh, them predicting the index S and P would lose seven percent last year. Many others, Merrill Lynch and the others, and I, I'd like to maybe pick up on this next week. I think we should. Out of time, uh, yes, and kind of relate it back to again what we're saying about having the right framework to invest. Thanks again for tuning in to Empirical Investing Radio. We'll be back next Thursday, two o'clock Pacific time. Have a great week. Take care. We hope you've enjoyed Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and Ethan Broga. Please join us again next Thursday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And for more information about Empirical Investing Radio, please call 800-923-4307. We'll see you next week. 